Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Alma Zaragoza Petty about the new book, Chingona, Owning Your Inner Badass for Healing and Justice. Creating the world you want to live in takes guts and grace and everything you've got. Imagining a just and healed world from the inside out will take dialing in our Chingona spirit. But by unleashing your inner badass, we join the righteous fight for dignity and justice for all. Alma, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. All right. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So I'm originally from Los Angeles. I have I was born here, but I was raised in Acapulco, Mexico. Um, it's a very tropical kind of, you know, sunny place. And I really enjoyed my childhood there, just playing with in the rocks and, you know, just with frogs and kind of having a good time. Uh, so that's a little bit about my personal background. In terms of just my education, I came back to the U.S. when I was around eight years old and learned English, went on to become the first high school graduate in my family, went on to college. And now I have a little too many degrees. I think I have like two masters and a PhD and, you know, just a lot of school. I really ended up loving going to school and I really wanted to help students like me in college that were trying to figure it out. So that's kind of what I decided to do as my, you know, day job, I guess. So was this field always your passion? It was. I think there was a lot about education that really intrigued me. I think one, you know, there was the more formal education that happens in institutions, right, where you learn material, you apply it uh, in a career, and you make a living out of it. And I was also very curious about um, personal education, like personal growth, how one matures, how one selects those kinds of careers and goes on to do things and find enjoyment, you know, and fulfillment. And so something about education, I guess, in some ways, um, you know, from a philosophical perspective, I've always enjoyed both thinking about the more structural kind of education, and also the more personal kind of education, the kind that, you know, helps us grow as individuals. And in your career journey, did you have mentors that really supported you and also maybe your colleagues that influenced you? Yes, I had a lot of mentors. I think, you know, I don't know that I would have been able to go through a higher education system in the United States as, as a kid of immigrants without a lot of mentors who were there to really guide me through the process of financial aid, applying to colleges, you know, all of the things that one requires to know in order to be able to access institutions that were, you know, not made or or originally thought of with me in mind or people like me in mind. And so it was a big curve and growth curve that I needed a lot of handholding from. So I had mentors in high school that, you know, just, you know, teachers that really inspired me to go on and go to college, even though I had never heard about college or knew what that was. I had um, counselors that also encouraged me to apply to financial aid so that I could pay for college. I didn't know that there was a, such a thing in my country and so, um, or in the U.S. And so, you know, without these really pivotal mentors at really pivotal times, I don't know that I would have ever been able to do what I've done so far in my career and in some of the things that I, you know, just in my professional life in general. And now as a mentor yourself, what would you say to our student listeners and uh, perhaps uh, people from the background similar to yours? Yeah, I guess I would say, you know, there's so much to know about oneself. There's definitely, you know, the 
kind of careers that we might want to grow into that require certain degrees and certain expectations of you as a person. But there's also so much richness in just getting to the core of who you are as a person and finding your own fulfillment um, beyond walls, beyond institutional walls, beyond work walls. And so I really hope that that is also what my book is an invitation to. And um, I really encourage people to find those things as well in life. And I think it just makes it such a much more enjoyable kind of path to be on. So your latest book, and sorry if I'm butchering it. <laughs> it's okay. It's a, it's a hard word. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Chingona? Yes, you got it right. <laughs> so Chingona, owning your inner badass for healing and justice. Yes. Now, how did you come to writing it? <laughs> so it was a very long process. I think a lot of it started out with me uh constantly hearing from people, man, you really need to write a book about your life. And I was like, okay, I feel like this is something we just tell each other whenever we're, you know, we think maybe the other person is interesting or something. So I, for a long time, I kind of thought, oh, that's interesting. I've heard this over and over throughout my life. And then as I got older, and as I went through some experiences and, you know, kind of hit, which I'll talk a little bit more about, I actually started to take that sign very seriously. So I thought, wait, wait a minute, maybe there is something to that kind of, um, you know, advice that I have been getting from different people at different times in my journey in life. And, and I started to synthesize all of those, um, you know, advice, all of that advice and all of that um, support. And uh, I ended up ha having a mentor. So the in the beginning stages of of even thinking about writing this book i think what really happened for me was that i actually had kind of a mental breakdown so i you know went to to get a masters in counseling i worked supporting first gen low income background students um get gain access and stay in college and then the recession happened this was back in 2008 a different recession and i decided to go back to school and so i went back to get my phd and during my phd i was in for a ride i just had so much going on just personally in terms of a mental health and also just you know in terms of uh, the type of support or lack of support that I was receiving, not receiving from, from people that were supposed to be there to sort of, you know, really ignite my curiosity, my intellectual kind of curiosity about the topics that I was interested in. And so after I finished PhD, I was exhausted. I had had a child by then. I and I was already a single mom before then in my master's program. And so I was now married, had a child and realized like, I just need a break. I just need to, you know, I just want to quit. Like I was so, um, you know, had been used to just pushing through life and trying really hard. And I was just done. I had no more to give. I decided to just give up. And till this day, my partner laughs at me because at that time I told him, I just want to be a housewife. And, you know, it's really funny when I say that because he was like, you would never just be a housewife. <laughs> so, so for him to hear me say that he, he really knew something was wrong and didn't let me, thank goodness that he didn't let me <laughs> just be a housewife. He, you know, he, he encouraged me to just kind of do what I could while I fought, you know, kind of dealt with some health issues that were coming up for me, I realized that I just went through, I had a really hard life, you know, growing up in Acapulco, being abandoned by my mother at a young age so that she could survive and come to a new country to, to say, send money to us so that we could eat, you know, so we could have the necessities. Um, I had never stopped to think about that. I had never stopped to consider like, wow, that was really hard. You know, a four-year-old me really went through some stuff. And then coming to a new country when I was eight, and, you know, coming from the kind of oasis that I kind of mentioned earlier, where I felt like Abulco was this just vibrant, green, lovely place to the city of South Central LA in Los Angeles and seeing people gunned down right next to my school, um, you know, drive-by shootings where I lived and just trying to understand what all that, all of that meant. So I, you know, I... I ended up just kind of pushing through, just just thinking, well, this is what life is. I'm just going to keep pushing and never gave myself any time to really just 
process all of that and figure out what was going on. And so, of course, it started showing up in my body as, you know, suppressed emotions often do. And so I started having panic attacks and just, you know, cold, sweaty nightmares and realized there was a lot in my soul and spirit that I needed to address. And so as I slowed down and kind of started to really take stock of what I had been through and even the experiences in my PhD program, I realized that, you know, there was just no more room for just pushing through. So I had to really just think about what I had been through. And all of that process led me to realize, like, I do have a book. I do have a book and I have a lot to say. And this is my journey of healing. And there's a way to do it in a in a sense that doesn't feel like it's all individualistic, but that I want to also support my own community in, like, fighting injustices and other issues that I'm very passionate about. Well, so let's dive into the book. And can we start with a very basic question, I suppose? <laughs> what sure. is Chingona? <laughs> yeah, so Chingona, depending on who you ask, can mean various different things. It is considered a vulgar word for many uh, Spanish-speaking populations. Um, and when I was growing up, it was definitely more so. And so basically it means you know, bastard, like the equivalent of bastard or being someone who is parentless, someone who is the product of a sort of, you know, parents that don't really matter, if you will. I'm, I'm trying to not say many bad words. So um, that's how I'll explain it. Um, but over the years, chingona has become a word of empowerment among the Latina community. So it really means like, just, you know, having all having just the guts and the and the power and the will to just fight through, but also to to lift other women up. So it's not just about me, but it's about my community and bringing others along in the journey. And so to be a chingona means you're a badass, but you're not just a badass for being a badass sake, but for to heal and to bring justice in the world. Um, and this is one of the ways that I've envisioned this word and, you know, you know, reimagined it, if you will, um, to mean to mean a different thing for this generation of women. So oh, how did it all start with this word? As you mentioned, that um, the meaning has changed a bit, that it was quite more derogatory term, and now it's more empowering. So what was its history? Yeah, so the history is actually a pre-colonial time, so or a colonial era time. Um, it is one the you know it is believed that it's a very contentious word so there's various histories around it but one of the ones that really stood out to me was this idea that when Hernan Cortes um, colonized the Aztecs the Machica in in Mexico um, he's given this woman as a gift and this woman is often um, completely you know name name kind of nameless in, in many in many ways isn't remembered as someone in history and and her you know her name was Malintzin or that's one of the names that um has been attributed to her and so she became known as La Malinche so La Malinche nowadays is a very derogatory word in Mexico to mean traitor mm -hmm. so this woman who was given to Hernan Cortes who was actually brilliant she knew two of the the regional languages and became a translator for him probably to survive, you know, most likely to survive. I mean, what else was there for her to do when she was given as a gift, right? And so in order to survive, she helped Hernan Cortes navigate um, the different communities where they first landed in the, in the East Coast of Mexico. And out of the rape of, these, of this woman and other women, um, the children that were born, they were called chingones. So mm -hmm. children of the fuck, meaning you know, bastard children, children who didn't matter, children who were sort of just uh, thought of as, you know, trash or, you know, not not legitimate, basically. And so this is sort of the etymology of the word chingon and chingona. But over the years, like I've said, it's become a word that has been reclaimed, especially in the Mexican community, to mean being a badass, being more than, you know, some someone who will not stay quiet, someone who will make a stand and also fight for their people and 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 fight in a way that is going to elevate the community. And so 
that's that's sort of the con- sort of contentious chingona um, word in where it comes from. So then how did the meaning start changing maybe throughout the 20th century, closer to our time? Yeah, I think one of the ways that it started to change is that chingon first started to mean something different. So for many years, men who were thought of as sort of brave and idealistic in terms of their, you know, guts and just being able to get things done were called chingones. So they were chingon, you know. And so often men who were called chingon, it became a way of saying like, you know, despite your hard circumstances, you're pushing through. So maybe that's where the, a little bit of that history kind of starts to shift to mean something different. And so for many years, chingon just became something synonymous with a a guy or, you know, uh, a boy, male, who was able to, you know, get things done move through life in a very brave way, despite maybe hardship. And after a while, um, you know, I think a lot of women in the in communities, uh, you know, we have feminism, right? Like across many communities. And I think at least in even in my case, as a young girl, I remember hearing like, well, why isn't it okay for me to be called a chingon, you know? And I want to be a chingon. And instead I was called a chingona and I knew it was a derogatory way of calling me, a ching, you know, calling me something. It meant that I was being loud and, you know, maybe demanding too much space and, you know, wanting too much, um, you know, having too much to say when, re- when, when all that was expected perhaps of women like me, or even in previous generations was that they sit there quietly and look pretty. Right. And so over the years, uh, women start to refer to each other as chingas, as something that, you know, very similar to chingon to start to mean that, no, we're, you know, we also can take this word to mean something different for our community and it could be a way to exalt one another. Was there some kind of a backlash against this uh, change of meaning of the word, maybe from a wider community? Um, I think there is. I think there's also, you know, within the Latina community, especially in the Mexican community, chingona means badass uh it it means that you you know you're pushing through despite hard circumstances and you know you're not sort of letting situations kind of stop you um and and i think that's mostly true now in the chingona community i think what or in the latina community i think what becomes more of the like the defining factor of whether latinas use this term or not is actually socioeconomic status because I think part of, you know, part of the roots of this word is one that's very vulgar. I think it's similar to maybe like cunt in the United States where it was, you know, used often as a way to, for the feminist movement to really start to embrace um, and, you know, reclaim that word from a negative, having a negative connotation to a more positive one. But not everyone was on board with that, right? Because there's still a lot of people, especially from higher socioeconomic status, might still cringe when they hear such a word and it's not part of their own communities. And so, if anything, I think maybe it's more, it has more to do with with the socioeconomic status of individuals and who feels comfortable saying this word because, it's considered a bad word, even if it's meant something positive now, as opposed to negative as it once was. So you frame it in terms of Chingona spirit. So can you just explain how do we understand the the spirit of it, basically, of the concept? <laughs> yeah. So, um, I, you know, it's funny. I recently was talking to a couple of white guys who were interviewing me for, about the book. And they're like, I'm so sorry that I can't be a Chingona. I'm like, no, yes, you can. Chingona <laughs> is... Ha- having the spirit of just being a badass, you know, like having the spirit of, you know, in a colonial patriarchal power, still standing up for what's right for women and for, and for people who maybe don't have that power because of socioeconomic status or whatever it is. And so of course you can still have the chingona spirit, even if you're not Latina. So this is an official invitation to anyone listening that having chingona spirit really means that it means learning from others who may not be of your same background, someone like me, for instance. Um, And also if, you know, realizing that to really understand and undo the, the, you know, the 
what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, the patriarchal and colonial mindsets that exist. Mm. We all need a chingona spirit. We all need to fight as brown women fight. So in your research and in your life, you probably came across quite a few inspiring individuals. So could you just give us examples of uh, the people who really inspire you? Yes. So I would, you know, I would start off with Malintzin. She was the Nawa woman who was, who is called La Malinche, you know, a traitor. Um, but really she's the mother of mestizos. She's, she's the mother of people who are of indigenous and Afro uh, descendant backgrounds in in Mexico. And she, to me, exemplifies a mother who made all the compromises necessary for her survival. Mm -hmm. And so even though she's used, usually painted in a light as a traitor and as a um, you know treacherous woman, I mean, imagine being her in that time and having to make the decisions that you did just to survive. And so I'm very inspired by that and by my own, you know, the history of my own country that, you know, that I have really strong roots with. Um, I'm also very inspired by campesinos. Campesinos are the people in the fields that that gather the fruits and vegetables that we are able to eat, whether it's organic or not. I'm super inspired by them because they literally nourish us. They, you know, I feel um, very, very inspired by their hard work, despite some of the beliefs that I think we have in terms of how important their job is, even though it's a very important job. Um, those are, you know, I would say the first two main sort of inspirational, mm. you know, people that I, I really look up to as true chingones and chingonas. And from your own experience, do you have people in your life that uh, really influenced you in this way? Yes. So I'd have to say the women in my family. So the women in my family, as I mentioned, had to make really hard decisions to immigrate into a country. Um, I have, my, my mother is one of six girls and or one of five girls, and they decided to immigrate to the United States due to lack of job and jobs in her home country and home 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 um, town. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, she made the really hard decision of leaving me and my siblings behind so that she could make that happen. Um, my grandmother you know, I think she raised like over 20 children between my, my, you know, my mother's kids and my aunt's kids. She was really a, a very sacrificial woman that I, I grew up witnessing day in and day out the hard work that she poured into our lives to kind of fill that void of just, you know, the mother figure. And in many ways, I think she became sort of this sacred mother for a lot of us because she really um, stepped into that role. And so I, I really, you know, she's one of my first mentors that I often, you know, think back to as someone who embodied all of that chingona inner spirit and energy in terms of being a fighter for her kids, um, a fighter for her grandkids. And despite coming from very low resources, just making it happen. So you described very well this um, spirit, the Chingona spirit on the individual level. So I was wondering, mm -hmm. can we also think of it on the level of community or specific groups that are really promoting this kind of way of thinking? Yeah, one of the things that I've really hoped to do with this book is create this visionary world of Chingonas building a bridge to healing and justice. So you know, I really um, use my narrative of, you know, things that I went through, things that I felt um, I needed to go through in order to really embody this chingonaness as a space for my future healed self. Like, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what it meant to be healed completely or have more integrative um, wholeness in terms of just uh, healing, you know, and, and I think that this was something that was very much a privilege for me because I didn't need to cross borders, physical borders to survive. And so because I was given this additional space to, to not just survive, but to thrive, I've been able to realize that I have 
been invited to different kinds of spaces that my ancestors maybe had not. So, you know, I have, I have um, the land of emotions ready for me to be able to cross into that maybe my family was unable to do because of just having to be on survival mode. And I also had this other land of just um, intellectual curiosity, you know, not that my the women that raised me weren't intellectually curious, but they didn't have the means or the energy by the end of their lives to really pour into that. They, they were very much in the survival mode. And so one of the things that I hope that my book does is really start to create this visionary world where we can go from be having this colonized pa past of survival to one of thriving in our indigenous and Afro-descendiente futures. So many of our listeners would be familiar with the um, Latina X community, if I'm correctly saying it. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. can, can you give us a bit more of a glimpse inside um, the community and what kind of uh, troubles they can be kind of going through um, during especially these uh, recent recent times, perhaps in the 21st century? Yeah, so the Latinx community is it's very, very heterogeneous. There's people in the Latinx community, um, you know, I think in, as in any other community that range in terms of their socioeconomic backgrounds, whether, you know, the way that they look, there's a lot of colorism in our community where, you know, the lighter you are, the more valuable you're perceived or beautiful you're told you are. Um, so there's a lot of colorism, especially because, you know, part of the Latinx community includes populations within North, you know, Mexican communities, but also um, other communities that have had in the past African um, slave ships sent to their countries and basically African descendants became part of their history. And so in Mexico, that's something that only recently became much more recognized that there's Afro-Mexicanos um, actually from Acapulco, which is a part very close to Costa Chica, which is where most of the Afro-Mexicanos in Mexico reside. And part of that was because of the location that it's in, you know, uh, African slaves were able to, or African enslaved people were able to, to uh, hide in this specific part part of the coast, and ended up creating their own lives there, despite sort of the attempts to keep them obviously enslaved. And so, you have all of this um, Afro descendientes across the Latinx diaspora, and this is something that continues, I think, to be even to this day a very contentious issue within the Latino community and outside of the Latino community or Latinx community because of just where, you know, we are in terms of just um, the acceptance of just the, our African ancestors in, in our different communities. And specifically in the U.S., I think immigration is a really big issue with, with um, a lot of the Latinx community. Uh, there's often people from all over, you know, Caribbean countries that are Latinx and that that are um, from Southern Cal Southern America that come to the U.S. or come to Mexico um, and that are treated poorly. You know, they're starved or left in cages. And and there's sort of a big right now, a big political push to really understand this issue and and try to to create a space where they're able to migrate here safely or 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 have safety in their journeys and you know there's this is a very um it's a very political issue as i mentioned and so i don't think that a lot of people obviously a lot of people don't agree on how to deal with this issue of immigration but this is something that latinx the latinx community is always wrestling with no matter where each individual country rests with in terms of their policy. It's something that is natural for people to do. And I think especially when big economic powers like the United States and Mexico have stripped a lot of the economies in other countries, they're, you know, people are going to want to move and find a way to survive. So how would the Chingona spirit really relate to this? Would be in thinking that perhaps even from the personal uh, sort of perspective that 
I'm worth it. You know, I, I have the right to be here. I would like to follow my dreams in this kind of sense. Yes, absolutely. I think that's from the personal sense, you know, migration is something that we see across species as something that is normal and natural. And, you know, we're not able to stop, right? Like, that's just sort of the flow of the way that different species in the world exist. Um, and when it comes to people, we we think that, you know, this is going to, this is different, or we want it to be different. And so we create these policies and rules about where people can exist or not exist. And I think what the Chingona spirit invites us to understand is that, you know, people um, will fight for what they think they, they need and, and, and what they need to survive and, and that they will become sort of these revolutionary um, fighters that will help us to understand maybe that the way that we're seeing an issue is not the only way to see that issue. So from your own experience, you mentioned really interesting thing earlier that uh, you, you sort of didn't stop to reflect on the life that you have uh, have led. And it's, it's definitely extraordinary, you know, the things that you had to go through. So how easy or difficult was it for you to kind of slow down and really think think back and um, process it all? Yeah, that's a great question. It was really hard. I think um, it was really easy for me to figure out really bad ways of coping with some of that. And so I think this is why I got to the level that it did where I was having panic attacks and just this very physical manifestation of needing to slow down. And I, for me, I think that's what had to happen. You know, I, otherwise I don't think that I would have listened to anyone or understood common sense at that point, because I had only known what I known. And because I had seen sort of what the women in my own family had to do, which was to fight. And so I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't realize that there were other ways to live besides just pushing through life or just fighting through life. And so once I slowed down, and I really started to investigate why I even had that belief. I re realized, wow, this must have been passed down generation after generation for so many years, um, you know, possibly since colonization. I don't know that, you know, there's any there's any other end point that I can I can give it. But that at this point, because I didn't this wasn't something that was practiced in, from anyone in my you know, mother's side of the family. And so, you know, that's that's kind of what it took for me. But obviously this book, The Ch Chingona, Owning Your Inner Badass for Healing and Justice, really invites others to not go about it the hard way. <laughs> you know, like learn from my experience. There's other ways to go through life um, that are way, way more balanced and that invite much more joy into your lives. And so, you know, I, I talk a lot about what that process is in my book. So, you know, I go from acknowledging what, you know, some of the past and reckoning with that instead of just ignoring, mm. you know, there's another chapter where I, you know, from just using some of my inner wisdom in terms of how I, I went through that process is, you know, letting memories speak to us. You know, there's, I, I like, I like to believe that there's many ways that one can experience healing and it, it isn't sometimes through institutional ways. So maybe a therapist isn't something that you have access to. And so how do you begin your own journey into growing uh, when there has been trauma or when there has been these very um, acute kinds of experiences like panic attacks and that and so on? Instead of ignoring memories, letting memories sort of lead and shape us to understand ourselves um, also insisting on telling your own story, you know, how do you, how do people perceive you, not only at the individual level, but at, in your community, your group, um, and how can you really tap into your own voice of how you understand yourself and help others understand you based on how, on that understanding. Um, I think often in different populations, we're often told what our history is mm. um, instead of being invited into a conversation of the ways that maybe um, there was violence against my, you know, like my, my, some of my ancestors and, and ways to sort of understand how it can be different. So how we can lead from a place of love and not hate um, or greed or whatever it was that led maybe some of our ancestors 
Um, also learning some of the ways that we can become translators. I call it cultural coyote. So coyotes are, you know, it's a complicated metaphor mm -hmm. because coyotes, uh, you know, literally are coyotes. So like the animals, but it's also the name given to people who transport um, people from one from one country to another illegally. Mm. And as we know from the, especially from Mexico into the US, they're called coyotes. And as we know from this, from a lot of news that break out, some of these coyotes do, you know, such an injustice and harm to people. They take advantage of the most vulnerable people and, and they end up, you know, doing hideous, hideous acts to people that they're supposed to be helping cross borders with and and so you know i don't shy away from the fact that that's a reality that does happen but coyotes you know in the better sense of the word are also people who bring you into like new destinations new paths um who, who bridge families and communities who may have been separated for a very long time and so it's not all you know the horrible stories that we hear in the news but it's also people who are risking their own lives to reunite family members with each other or to help people survive in a different country. And so, you know, one of the things that I mentioned is also this idea of becoming a cultural coyote. So how do you bridge, how can we bridge people into different places, whether those are, you know, board, board meetings, um, you know, where, whether those are more of emotional support groups, you know, there's so much, so many resources to be able to push through and, and sort of heal oneself. And so, um, you know, I also talk about some of the scars and how scars have, you know, even though they're painful to, to look at and, and they remind us of the hurt, they're also amazing in showing us that we can heal because otherwise it would just, they would remain just wounds all the time and they don't, right? So physically and metaphysically scars heal. That's what they do. Um, but we often just focus on how we were hurt, we were injured, and not see scars as proof of healing. And so that's something that I invite people to do in my book as, as well. And and also, I guess um, you know the other the other section is about re-envisioning your identity. So like I mentioned, you know, for many years I just thought that there was this one way to do life, and if you didn't do it that way, then you know, well, th there was no way of of getting ahead. And I think a lot of that has to do with the way that we educate people um, and sort of re re um, establish the same colonial kind of mentality of oppressing one another, mm. instead of really breaking out of those oppressive systems and learning how to humanize one another again, and how to live in a way that we can actually see each other and not just see the institutions that we represent. Um, and that's hard. That's hard work. I think there's there's been many, many visionaries and amazing folks uh, that have talked about this over the over generations. But this is something that needs to have uh, continued attention so that we can continue to sort of hold each other accountable, I think, as a, you know, worldwide culture. So, yeah, that's that was my process. And that's what I share about in Chingona, Owning Your Inner Badass for Healing and Justice. Um, I want this to be a book about building a bridge to more healing and justice across communities and also for future generations as well. So as we're living in a much more connected world nowadays, how has this online culture and social media played a role in it? Did it also help uh, to maybe reach more people? I think so. I mean, that's how I felt that I was reached as well. I, I'm, some of the things that I've learned, I've learned through social media and, you know, I've learned about seeing the work that visionaries have done in the past as something that needs continual attention. Uh, and I don't know that I would have learned about those folks. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about Angela Davis and like, you know, Paulo Freire. I, I wouldn't have known about these folks if there wasn't such a thing as like social networks and so because I've been able to learn about some of the struggles that people face for instance at the Mexican border so you know in 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 the southern border of Mexico there's also Central American and South Americans that 
and also Caribbean folks that that tried to cross through there first before crossing the U.S. border. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have known that. Um, and I wouldn't have known the way that Mexico itself also harms some of these immigrant populations um, had it not been for social media. And so, you know, learning about these injustices that sometimes we recreate without even realizing is is are some of the ways that I became really interested in, you know, having some a different kind of visionary future for ourselves. Um, and I don't think that that would have happened without it. And I think there's also so much promise in social media and the use of social media for people to coalesce and work together in a lot of these um, pressing issues of our time. Hmm, what is truly fascinating is that it led us directly to the issues of human rights and just mm. of justice as well. So what is your vision for for these kind of topics and how will it help us change some of the ways that we perhaps even treating each other and the planet? Yeah, so one of the things that I really call people into in Chingona is this idea that we can only heal the world as much as we are healed internally. So we are replicating, you know, very violent, um, very oppressive systems out in the world because we haven't dealt with ourselves. Uh, And often I think when I see, you know, different dignitaries or political leaders from different countries talk, I can almost hear what they have not processed, you know, like I can hear what they are not dealing with in their own sort of personal lives. And, and some of the things that, that some people say um, that are in leadership roles um, can be very toxic. And so, you know, I really want us to push people like that, that are leaders that are, or if people that that want to become leaders to really see how society is just a representation of your own fractured self. And so the more that we understand ourselves, the more that we will awaken to some of the fractures that we are creating externally. And so as we move you know, into more of a human rights, you know, some of the human rights issues, once we are able to address our own hurt and our own woundedness, it is so much easier to see what others are growing through and the humanity of what they're going through, um, including our planet. You know, I think that for many generations, our ancestors understood the value of living in concert with the world, right? Um, I think across almost all populations, um, this was the case. Maybe that was just because that was what was available. And with technological revolutions and all of that, it became much more, you know, easier, for instance, to use tools as a way to, to make me to maybe get through like the daily tasks that we had to get through. Like I'm thinking about, for instance, like the washing machine or something like that, you know, like there's Mm -hmm. things that became technological revolutions because they help (laughs) because we want, you know, it became a way to, to save time and, and to have, to have this, this, this idea that 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 we're not just working all day long, right? But I think that when we did that, we also forgot to actually um, love each other during the time that we had that extra time. What are we actually doing with that extra time? It seems like we just keep trying to carve the mm-hmm. faster, easiest way to do to get through things so we can save time. Save time for what? What are we doing with the time that we're saving? We're actually just getting more stuck in the grind of capitalism and, you know, consumerism. Um, And so I think part of owning your inner chingona really really means examining some of your own practices that, that replicate that because ultimately it's, it's not creating a better world. Like, you know, it's harming the natural world. Um, But also, you know, collectively, I think we're all at this, at this moment where we we know that we have done so much harm to to mother earth if you will and yet here we are you know still mm-hmm. pushing and and seeing how far we can take it and i think that if we were to really pause in in the sense in how i pause we would understand that you know there's there's enough here for everyone there shouldn't be 
there shouldn't be populations in the world that are starving every day if we really pulled our resources and work together to help one another. Um, but that's just, that's not how it works, right? Like a lot of, um, even through the pandemic, we saw countries didn't want to share their um, mm. their vaccination. They didn't, they, they were protecting their patents because they wanted that money for themselves. And while that is definitely the way that life is, it's not the way that life could be. And I think that, you know, once we start thinking about how our happiness is intimately tied with one another, we can start to really, really slow down and examine, examine why we do what we do. And honestly, sometimes it can be a little overwhelming to think about that because I don't see people stopping. <laughs> you know, I, I kind of see people still being motivated by by economics and like just getting richer and and the profit and the bottom line. And I think if we continue to do that, um, I don't know that we're going to have a place to live in in generations to come. Yeah, and despite this uh, perhaps more pessimistic side, what what I actually took uh, away from uh, from uh, sort of your lessons is that uh, in this way we can really unleash our own potential, but the potential of other people, like even something like washing machine, it's just just a washing machine, isn't it for us now? But it would just it was such a revolution in uh, sort of domestic uh, uh, domestic chores and work that time women spent on it, right. So what would be your sort of perfect future? Maybe, I don't know, maybe in the short term or, or the longer term? Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the things that I see is really working with our, on, on ourselves in terms of our pain. I think that often when we think about the future, it's hard to understand different ways to work collectively and to work as a whole community, because there might be fractures, like I mentioned, within ourselves, where we haven't really addressed some of the pain or some of the disposable ways that we feel society have treated us. And so in the short term, I think I want people to find that kind of healing, to find that mental, emotional, physical, spiritual healing, because I think that when you do, you start to see how interconnected we are. And I think that when we see how interconnected we are, it's so hard to ignore it. It's so hard to, 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 you know, treat someone in a certain way because that someone's going to grow up and, and carry that and, you know, do something because of the way that maybe you treated them. And so, you know, one thing that I really value is nonviolence. And so one of the ways that I, I, I want our society to learn is to, to really understand how we can live without violence. I think that often because we're scared, because we're stressed, because, well, they're not going to play along this way. So why should we play along that way? Mm. Those are real fears. You know, there's, I, I understand that that's, that's something that is historically true and, and can garner a lot of fear. But if, but if we stay only connected to thinking of ways to harm one another or ways to not be harmed you know it's very reactive it's very like um unprocessed if you will and so one of the ways that i think we can really start to see one another is if we start to transform ourselves in that way and and start to see that we are so connected with one another um despite some of these national borders political borders that we create there's much more that unites us that that doesn't then thinking about the bigger picture well we, we spoke quite a lot on the, uh, the bigger picture but i was wondering how optimistic are you that we as society will be able to reach these kind of goals and perhaps uh, what are your groups or people that really bring you hope that it will be achieved yeah, that's a great question, because I definitely feel like I have to find those people all the time. <laughs> Otherwise, I do stay in a very pessimistic kind of place. Um, but, you know, people that have, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to write also a book about personal growth, 
self-care slash self-help, if you will, because I wanted to, to, to let others see, you know, a different way of being able to heal through some of your traumas and, and issues. And so as I became an, hopefully become an example for some people, you know, there's been people that I've read that have totally changed the way that I see uh, the way, you know, my own sort of uh, experiences. Mm -hmm. So I've actually learned a lot from Holocaust survivors. Uh, I know this might seem a little strange, but I, I've read a couple of books and have always been intrigued by um, people who survived such a horrible, horrible time in history. Um, there obviously there's been other genocides and, you know, including my own sort of, you know, ancestors in Mexico in terms of colonization and, you know, the raping and the villaging pillaging of, of, of people and colonizing them. But there's something about survivors from the Holocaust that give me a lot of hope. And so I've read, um, I forget his name. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Well, one of the ones that I did read was, uh, it's called the ballerina of Auschwitz. And it, it's a story about a, a woman who survived Auschwitz. She was practicing to become a dancer before she was taken in to a concentration camp. And she was made to dance um, to some of the German uh, people that were holding her hostage. And, and it talks about the will she had to live and how she got through and not only how she got through, but how she healed from all of that, because, mm -hmm. you know, there's stories of people that like get through really hard stuff, but then they're just kind of like skin and bones at the end of it. They're just kind of lifeless and, and sad, you know, and, and yet there's this amazing stories of people that have survived such trauma and such horrible, horrible horrible experiences and become these like beacons of light and love for some reason, you know, and a lot of that has to do with them. I think not being scared of diving into the, to the pain and the hurt and just owning it as part of their experience without letting it consume and overcome them to define who they are. And people like that who have stories of just incredible fortitude or just found a way or found the support that really helped them to still fight through and, and find meaning in life. Just, they really, really encourage me and encourage me that we're heading somewhere positive. Um, whenever, you know, I see a lot of negative things that are going on. Um, but yeah, and so I try to hold on to those stories. I try to focus on the ways that we are moving forward in, in many ways and, and not in the ways that we are replicating the same mistakes over and over and over again. Because if you do that, if you stay in that cycle, it's really hard to to see that there is actually a lot of people that are growing from some of the fractures that they've endured. And even through the quarantine, you know, I feel like was one of those moments in history where I think it kind of woke a lot of people up, you know, into understanding how fragile we are, how humanity is super fragile. Um, and yet, you know, I'm also starting to see how easily it is to kind of go back to the status quo and not really do things that much differently. But I encourage people, listeners who are, you know, interested in Chingona and also in and finding those 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 different organizations or people in your local community so that you can start to see how it how it is happening how there are already a lot of people who are understanding that we need to take care of each other we need to take care of the earth and we need to take care of ourselves i think that it starts at a very small level that like that sometimes so that we can start to understand how we are connected. And what discoveries in your journey to writing your book, Chingona, surprised you the most? I think one of the biggest discoveries is, well, there's two. One is that as I healed, I became much more brave in trying to understand my past. And so I have actually be, um, reconnected with some of my biological family on my father's side. 
And so I've met new family members that I didn't know I had, and they literally live like five minutes away from where I live now. And so that was very um, interesting. Uh, Another thing that really surprised me was how much this book kept on giving. So not only did I kind of pour out all of these like experiences that I've had, and some of them which are very, very hard, were very um, difficult for me to get through. Um, But not only did I find healing from that, but even now as I like, I'm done with it, and I'm talking about my book, I find that I'm still sort of learning more about myself and learning what I really care about and what really brings me joy. And I think in the past, you know, I didn't really understand how diving into pain would mean a finding joy much more. And I think now that I have gone through that process, I realize it's not that there isn't going to be pain anymore or that there isn't going to be struggle. It's that I'm going to be able to have more capacity for both the struggle and the pain while also being able to hold the joy and the passions that I have at the same time and not feel like I have to drop all of these things because I have to deal with these other things. And it just kind of broaden my capacity for both of those things for for sadness and joy at the same time and then being completely non-humble what were some of your most badass moments in your life now thinking back (laughs) (laughs) oh this is a fun question um so i'm not gonna lie i was called the chingona a lot um and i think that that was one of the ways that my Chingona community stepped up to really encourage me in really hard times. And so one of the times that I can recall is being a single mom when I was going through grad school. That was a Chingona badass move because it is not easy. And I had to find a lot of resources to make that happen and to fight for what I really wanted to fight for. Another Chingona moment was finishing my PhD studies, even though Mm -hmm. I felt like I was... My ideas were not something that was valued and I was in an institution that really didn't understand what I was doing there, I think. <laughs> and I still got through it. You know, I squeezed by and and did it, um, you know, and that was a long-term goal of mine to ha- to work on a PhD. And so those were some of my biggest Shingona moments that I've had. I'm really glad that you mentioned these and uh, definitely many <laughs> of our listeners will, would resonate with that. And you know, to let them know that these are definitely Chingona moments. <laughs> yes, yes. It is so hard to get through those institutional barriers sometimes. And, you know, I I, I totally get that. And that's why those are some of my biggest Chingona movement, moments, because I don't think that, that was, I was necessarily meant to get through them. <laughs> well, this has been a really insightful and eye-opening discussion. So what are you working on now? And what will be your next project? So right now I'm working on the book launch. Like I mentioned earlier, I I have a book launch for Chingona in November, and it's going to be locally here in Los Angeles. It's a free community event. And so I'm organizing various women-owned vendors and partners to help me collaborate on this so that it could be a massive Chingona movement here in Los Angeles. And so that's taking up a lot of my time. I also want to write another book. Um, I don't. I haven't started that process yet, but I I'm really excited about um, writing about grief and joy more. You may have heard me kind of mention that a lot, and I think that you know there cannot be enough books about grieving. There's like so much that happens to the human condition in terms of grieving in different ways, and and I and I think one of the ways that I'm going through it now is. You know, my, my stepdad is uh, terminally ill with cancer and I find and it's really interesting because at the same time I'm learning all about my, my biological father's side and and I'm just like, what is going on? Why did the world coalesce to and the universe coalesce to like both bring me a father figure right now and take away another one? So, you know, I'm dealing a lot with that emotionally, but I also feel like this is a book in the making. So those are my two biggest projects right now. And what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book? Yeah, so my book is will be out November 1st across any all the bookstores. Um, I really encourage people to 
go-to bookshop because they partner with local local um, bookstores and um, it's a an amazing way to support literacy in smaller communities as opposed to supporting like really big companies uh, that will remain nameless um, but you know that's one way to get my book November 1st and um, you can also find me at the doc ZP across all social media platforms and, and websites so the doc ZP T-H-E-D-O-C-Z-P. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you.